Okay, uh, let me share with you again a little bit about what's coming up called One Life. And uh, there's a gentleman, you're going to hear his name more than once, so I want to give you just a little bit of background. His name is Gary Poole. Gary Poole graduated from Indiana University, uh, was a campus minister years ago at ECC, and uh, then went to a little church up in Chicago, uh, you may have heard it called Willow Creek, and he was there for 18 years as the minister of evangelism. And the way he put it, uh, his entire mission was to be the voice for unchurched people, to have a heartbeat for those that were trying to find God. And so he started an entire ministry where he's trying to help churches to really make this a part of their DNA. And there's a half a dozen or so pilot churches where he loves Bloomington. So he contacted Sherwood Oaks, and he said, would you be interested in this? Again, it's not a program. It's about uh, kind of changing your course to really make this a top priority. And so we've been working on this for months. And um, I want to read Gary's words that kind of lay a foundation. God's heart beats for those who are far from him as a loving father. He's waiting for them to return home. The last matter, the lost matter to God, they're worth finding, celebrating. Every person is someone Jesus died for. And God wants to use each of us in his plan to lead them back home. God's heartbeat is for those far from him. God is passionate about that. Now, when you hear the word passion, what do you think? Well, passion is what gets you out of bed in the morning. Passion is like, what is it in life? Like, man, I've, I've got to do that. Okay, what is that? Uh, let me give you a couple of, uh, I would say they're extreme examples. One is a man by the name of Zach Hample. I researched this. I can't believe this. He has a collection of nearly 10,000 baseballs from major league stadiums all over the United States. He camps out during batting practice. He's, he's made that his life mission. Now, I know what you're thinking. Do you have a job? Do you have a life? I mean, why would you make that your life mission? Uh, Sandy Abram was here first service. And a few weeks ago, she said, John, I really, I just love shoes. I said, well, what do you mean you love shoes? And she said, it's sickening. So I want to show you a picture of her closet. Yeah, there you can see it. She counted them, 291 pairs of shoes. And so Sandy, I, I, to Sandy, I said, there's only one word. That word would be intervention. So anyway, we're, we're praying for her. But we're all passionate about something. And we need to step back sometimes and say, God, I'm so thankful you're passionate about those that so many people have given up. Maybe some of you this morning walked in this morning and you thought, you know what, I think God's given up on me and I want you to know he's never going to give up on you. And that there are people in our lives that maybe we've given up on and we need to be reminded, don't you ever give up on anyone because that's the God that we serve. We're going to get into Luke 15, if you want to go to your Bibles right now, the gospel book of Luke. And there's a pattern and a rhythm. You're going to see this pattern over and over again, and it goes something like this. Something or someone is lost. There's a search that begins. Then something or someone is found, and then there is a celebration. And I love that because I think that's the rhythm the church needs to get into. So we're going to get into Luke 15. And I simply want to take three words that I think describe this love that God has for us, this passionate love that God has for us. Three very simple words that go through these three parables that to me define the love of God. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me again to Luke 15. Let's start in verse 7. 
And then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous persons that do not repent. Now, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. So he's telling the religious leaders, don't be content in your little world. He's telling the church, don't be content in your little world. Always have a heart for those outside, those that are struggling, those that are hurting, those that are far from God. And I love the analogy because we see it over and over again. He compares us to sheep. Now, again, I don't know anything about sheep. I've talked to folks that have had sheep, and they pretty much tell me they're like a pillow with four legs. I mean, they are defenseless, not the smartest creature on earth. They have a tendency to wander, and it's the perfect illustration for us, isn't it? Because we're defenseless without God. I mean, we think we've got it together, but without God, we're defenseless. Remember, I listened to some of these scriptures about the shepherd and the sheep. Ezekiel 34 warns the leaders that they are not good shepherds, that they need to care for their flock. In Matthew 9, 36, we see Jesus looking over at Jerusalem. He had compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. John 10, 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the most beloved of all Psalms, Psalms 23. And how many times have you heard that uttered at a funeral? Or in a time of crisis, the Lord is my shepherd. These moments in life when you feel defenseless, he's always there. So here's the first word that describes God's love for us. Ridiculous. It is ridiculous how much he loves us. How ridiculous? He has a flock of 100 and he's willing to leave 99 to go find one. Now that's ridiculous. But that's the heart that he has for us. It's interesting that uh, in a few weeks or a few weeks ago, we got into the whole idea of curiosity, questions that people ask. So here's a question that over the years people have asked me, why and how could a loving God send someone to hell? I may have ever had that question addressed to you, okay? Here's the deal. God doesn't send anyone to hell. I, I love this in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, God does not want anyone to perish. God is going to do everything he can in ridiculous ways to get our attention. And God will show us his power and his mercy and his grace in ridiculous ways. And I can tell you this from being in ministry. Here's one way that God gets your attention, and it's very painful. It's when you're going through a crisis. Because when you go through a crisis many times, you've got to make a decision. Am I going to trust God or trust something else? And his love is so ridiculous, he'll do whatever it takes to get through the hardened heart. He loves us that much. The second word I want you to think about in God's love is simply the word urgent. It's the word urgent. Look at verse 8. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, does this sound familiar? 
She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin, and in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Urgency. Now, uh, scholars tell us that uh, this was no random coin, that uh, it was probably a coin that uh, during a Jewish wedding, they would hit these 10 beautiful coins. So if you lose one of those coins, that is so personal to you. It's priceless to you. It may not be worth much to anyone else, but to you it's priceless. And so there's a panic as she goes through, urgently trying to find that lost coin. We know, all of us in this room know something about searching for lost things. All of us do. Uh, Marie and I talk about, it's because we're getting old. We talk about the big three, that think in life, how many times we're either searching for car keys, a wallet, or an iPhone. Okay, And we're just constantly thinking about those three things. And what happens if you lose one of those three things? The world stops. You know, who lost my kid? You know, my kids get tired. Who lost my keys? Dad, you're always losing your keys. You're always losing your wallet, you know, and they're just terrible kids. But we all have that. And if you're a man, there's a fourth item that I left out. You may catch it? A remote control. Yeah, the remote control. Like we have this huge blue couch, and I'm telling you, we bought it from Satan because we have, I cannot tell you how many times we have to turn the whole stupid section around to get the remote. And like life stops. We'll do whatever it takes. Randy Abram, this is such a funny story. He said he knew this guy, big guy, okay? And he said this guy kicked, <laughs> kicked his remote under a sectional. And uh, Randy said, what'd you do? And he goes, I've been reading for six weeks. He just gave it up. I'm not even going to get it. We know the urgency of trying to find things that are lost. It is estimated that in your life you will lose at least valued things up to $5,500 every year. We spend 12 full days searching for something. I guarantee you, sweet, there was something lost in your lives, and you were scrambling to find it. That's just part of the process of life. So when Jesus shared this parable, they got it. He said, things are the things you go after, but are you willing to have that same urgent, just go get it done for people who don't know God? Some of you may remember a few years ago when we started on the west side, I talked about a survey, and it was a group called ARDA. Now, uh, this group, ARDA, does a lot of like spiritual analysis, but here's what they did. Uh, they take a census every 10 years, so 2010, there's a religious section on the census, and the census basically will ask this question, um, do you claim any religious affiliation so that's the first. Do you claim any religious affiliation? If so, what? They write it in. If you claim nothing, put a check. Now, here's Monroe County, just so you get a snapshot of Monroe County. 46,000 people claimed to have some religious affiliation. 96,000 checked no religious affiliation whatsoever. So what does that tell you is taking place every Sunday morning? Church isn't relevant in their lives. And the church has to quit saying, come to us, come to us. It doesn't work. We have to go to them. We have to invest in other people's lives. That's the only way we're going to bring people to Christ. 
Um, and when we start investing in those things that matter, then we stop quarreling about things that don't matter. The church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. We are all in the sinners club. And we have so many friends and family that desperately need Christ. Listen again to that pattern. Something or someone was lost. A search begins. Something is found. A celebration. Luke 15.10, In the same way there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. I love that at baptisms. Um, Angie's baptism last Sunday, and uh, I, th I think it was Doug who said, and the angels are rejoicing in heaven at this time. Um, Angie, I'm going to put you on the spot here, but when Angie was baptized uh, last week, uh, her son was part of the baptism, and that, I thought about that all day. That is my prayer for every one of you. I hope you have all these crazy things on your bucket list. Put this one. You want to be there when somebody comes to Jesus Christ, and you want to be the one that's a part of that baptism. Put that right at the top. I want to be a part of that. I want to bring someone to Christ, and I want to walk with them, and I want to celebrate with the angels because that is as good as it gets. That's our top priority as a church. And then there's a third word that I absolutely love. In Luke 15, it's the story that's found, verses 12 through 32, and it's simply the word grace. It's the story of the prodigal son. This is something I found interesting. That word prodigal, most people think it means wayward, rebellious. But in Greek, it actually means extravagant. I think, I know what you're saying, honey. I know what you're feeling. <laughs> I think what happens is we look at the prodigal son, we think, this kid's a jerk. I mean, he just takes the money and he, he's rebellious. And I really think what was going on is he was really extravagant. It's like, I just want, I want it all, and I want it right now. And really, if you think about it, that's our culture. That extravagance can really seriously get us in trouble. It's the battle between what we want and what we need. And I love the quote, we live simply so others can simply live. There's a book uh, that I love by J.R. Salser, and he said this, we need to go from a generation of me to a generation of we. So let me give you some good news. Uh, all three campuses took up a, a love offering last week for the flood victims in Houston. And at this point, it's 75,000 and it's growing. And give God a hand. That's good. Well, it's a good start. You're going to hear more about opportunities. Uh, I don't have any doubt we're going to have opportunities to go down and serve in Houston. I think we're going to have opportunities to serve uh, down in Florida. Uh, if, if they have something that hits Hawaii, I want to help that community too. But seriously, we're going to do whatever it takes because that's, I think the world sometimes says, yeah, I would love the church if the church actually reached out to people in need. And so I got to brag on you a little bit, you're stepping up. And that's what we continually have to do is to reach out to those that are broken because they're broken all the time. Follow with me then in Luke 15. Look at verses 17 through 25. What an amazing story. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Now, this is the younger child broken saying this. And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Here's my favorite verse. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So what does that tell you about the dad? Every day he's looking out the window. And he was filled with compassion. What he did, he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And the father said, quick, bring me, first of all, the best robe. You know what that robe was? That was probably his father's robe. That was his way of saying, you are my son. A ring was a sign of not just royalty, but loyalty. It was his way of saying, not only are you a part of the family, you are my son, and I will do whatever it takes. And the sandals, you'll never be a servant. You are my son. That's the kind of God that loves us. That's grace. I wanted you to visually uh, comprehend this morning the best that we can grace. So we've got a, a couple of volunteers that are going to help us to do that. So Greg's going to come up, and then uh, we have uh, Officer Robert White with us this morning. And uh, we're going to play out a little something for you, and, and maybe this has happened to you. My, my guess is it's probably never happened. So set this up. Greg's going to come up, and, uh, and Officer White. So here's the situation. Uh, Greg thinks he's a teenager again, and uh, he gets a new car, and he's on Highway 69, and, uh, and he's going um, 127 miles an hour. You know, it's not a good situation. I think he's going to Odin Meat Locker. I'm not sure. But anyway, he's... He's, he's going down, he's in a good time, and he, he gets pulled over by Officer White, and uh, it's a no-brainer, he has to give him a ticket, so Officer White gives him a ticket. Well, Greg, you can't refuse a ticket. Okay, all right. Now, here's what's interesting. Not only did Officer White give him a ticket, there was something else he gave him. You know what he gave him? He wrote out a check for the amount of the ticket. Now, has that ever happened? It will never happen. Okay, yeah, just so you know. But you know what that is? That's grace. You can't explain it. It doesn't make a bit of sense. And it's God saying, hey, I, I, know, I already know what you're bringing all this garbage in, and I want you to know something. I've, I've already paid for that. You're taking care. I love you that much. Let's give these guys a huge hand. Y'all, I was getting nervous. I thought Greg was going to go for his gun, and that would have got ugly. Anyway, yeah, I'm going to give you the ticket. Yeah, you can't have the check. Sorry, yeah. No grace for me. Okay, anyway, I want, you, I want you to think how often God does that in your life. That he just pours out grace, and we step back and go, that doesn't make a bit of sense. Because of the world that we live in, it's a world of excess. How excessive are we? The average American home has tripled in size the last 30 years. 32, 32% of Americans have a two-car garage they can't get a car in. The average American throws away 65 pounds of clothes a year. We positions to what? The older brother. Now, here's something I was thinking about the other day about excess, is the older brother who was so angry with his father for forgiving the younger brother, he battled excess. Do you know what his excess was? He was a people pleaser. I'll show you how good I am. You watch how hard I work. I want people to see how I work. I want people to know 
I'm a great son. To the point when somebody is broken and hurt and needed forgiveness, they needed to experience grace, his response was, not on your life. Do you remember who Jesus was talking to? Pharisees. That's who they were. Everybody in public said, look how good they are. But their hearts were so hard. And God said, I want you to have a soft heart for those that are struggling. Man, I want you to feel what I feel. I want you to love people the way that I love. Why? Because we all need that. Now, do you know who some of the worst people pleasers are in the world? Ministers. Straight up. Because we don't want to look bad. So we can easily get on that hamster wheel of just, I want to please people. I want to please people. I just want to make people, I want to look like I'm working. I'm work but are we saved from our works? No. What are we saved from? We are saved through God's fill in the blank. Grace. It's unconditional. It is a God that loves us so much that it is beyond description. Grace is still amazing. It is still amazing. When, um, when I was a kid, I don't remember why I remember this. But it's the first drive-in movie uh, my, my sister and my brother-in-law took me to. And the movie was, <clears throat> this is, shows how old I am, uh, Shenandoah with Jimmy Stewart. Now, some of you are like, who's Jimmy Stewart? I you know. And that's your problem. So anyway, um, but I want to just give you, in a nutshell, even as a kid, why this movie has just stuck with me over the years. And it really did have a profound effect on me as far as God's love and the love of a father. But there were two scenes. And the one that started in this little bitty church, and um, there was this huge, just full of the whole family. He was a widower, so he had all of his, his sons and daughters. He had the grandchildren. He had the father's, or see, son-in-law. He had the whole pew full. And at the very end of the pew was the youngest son. And he was, he was just kind of an honor kid probably 14 or 15, and he was playing with fishing line, and you see Jimmy Stewart look down in the pew, everybody's seeing that look from their parents, and the kid, you know, paralyzed, he makes him pass it all the way down the row, and you're thinking, what an amazing family. But then you knew what was coming, because the movie was shot, it was all about the Civil War, and what the Civil War did to all these families. Well, at the very end of the movie, uh, you look down the pew, and now it's half empty. Some of the family members have been killed, and uh, you look down at the end of the pew, and of course the youngest son is there because he ran off to go to war. And so they're singing a church hymn. <laughs> the church doors open, and there's that youngest son on crutches. He slowly starts making his way to his dad. Even as a kid, I thought, that's how God loves me. That's how God loves you. You beat up. Uh, maybe some of you this week has just been like, just so terrible, the pain, but he's there. And outside these doors, there are so many people, they don't know Jesus Christ. They don't know the hope of Christ. They have never experienced his love. They've never just completely been engulfed in his grace, and they need to experience that. And that is up to everybody here today, that they can feel that. That's why we're here. That's why the church exists. It's not about us. It's about all those folks that need Jesus Christ.